Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Happy 2020. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will talk about the Golden Globes, Tucson, and holiday sales. They'll also cover a weird jewelry story of the week. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and JCK Online. And this is Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Let's talk about the holiday sales. Yeah. Christmas is the big one for the industry. It is. So far, and again, this is very early on, I I think uh, most of the news I've heard is pretty good. I think it was a decent season. I did hear that some of the mall stores are a little challenged. Last year, there was a huge issue. When I'm talking last year, I mean 2018, right before the holiday, there was a bunch of Trump tweets about China. And for a lot of people, it really, it it seriously hurt their business. And I I spoke to at least one diamond dealer who had a big diamond sale and was all good to go. And then it kind of fell through at the last minute after all those tweets. So there was nothing like that that killed the holiday this year, which is good. It seems all the uh, international craziness was uh, saved till after New Year, which is which is yeah, good. Small blessing. It's small blessing, right? Thank God for small favors. There did, and I'm not 100% sure this is true for jewelry, but there did seem to be a lot of discounting this year. Things were very, very cheap. You know, I bought like some jeans for like $8. I mean, you know, things were oh really, it was, which I've never seen before. I was just actually reading a study. They said that there was some of the highest levels of discounting this uh, last holiday that there's ever been. So... We'll see how it goes, and we'll see if profit margins hold up. From what I understand, even though it was a decent holiday for diamonds, you know, the pipeline is still a little full, and that's still going to continue to be an issue for the rest of the year. Overall, things were good, and the holidays weren't canceled, and that's great. Okay. Well, that all sounds, yeah, relatively good. I think everything I'm hearing is that people are generally in good moods, and that always then fuels the business in the early part of the year when we have a spate of jewelry and gem shows. And as everyone knows, we've got the Tucson gem shows coming up. And of course, the finished jewelry shows that kind of bookend those. We've got Centurion in Phoenix. Of course, JCK Tucson opens February 5th in Tucson. There's another show, the Select Jewelry Show, that's also in Tucson. And then, of course, all the loose gem shows. And so in talking to some dealers and some influencers and just people who are kind of nitty gritty in the the thick of the gem market. We've gotten a few leads on the colors and the stones that are going to be big this year. I mean, it's a little hard to tell before Tucson because, of course, all the news that really is newsworthy breaks there. But heading into the shows, I think we can confidently say, and and this feels a little bit like a throwaway item because every year there's a Pantone color of the year announcement and it feels like, you know, does that really make a big difference? And this year, what I'm hearing is that, yes, people feel like because it's classic blue, which is that rich, not quite royal, but sort of very platonic shade of blue, that people feel like that is an extremely important color for the world of gems, not only because it means blue sapphire, which is, of course, the most obvious choice when you're trying to capture that that rich blue, but it also means lapis. It means iolite. It means tanzanite. It even means black opal in its sort of purest, bluest when it has that kind of blue flare. So it means a lot of stones, which obviously opens up the world of color to a lot of different people. It's also a great way to, you know, blue is consistently rated, you know, everybody's favorite color. I think there's studies on why that is and psychologically why we're drawn to that color. But 
it's an easy avenue for people to enter the world of color. And so look to Tucson and look to that color in that palette for some some real, I guess you'd call it a slam dunk, just easy, obvious places to go if you're looking to stock your store for the new year. Another stone we've heard a lot about is garnet, which is January's birthstone. I think most consumers, when they realize that it's not just this kind of simple red stone that's a little bit of a, you know, a cheap ruby or a sort of a, a very common stone. It was used, you know, a lot in Victorian jewelry, and there's different kinds of garnets, almondine and pyrope. I think when consumers realize that the world of garnet is so much wider and more interesting than that, there's savorite garnet, demantoid garnet, two remarkable green types. There's purple grape garnet. There are orange, bright orange, spessartine garnets. There Really, the world of garnet is so wide, and some of it is affordable and some of it is pricier, but I think people are always pretty stunned to recognize the breadth of that universe. So, And I think designers, many have known garnets for years, but those that haven't experimented in that with that variety, I think, are going to start just because there's so many directions they can go. The other thing we're seeing is kind of the this other palette that seems to be really fashionable at the moment, and it's kind of a sunset palette, we're calling it. It's oranges and reds and yellows, and it's got these fiery kind of colors. I spoke to Hannah Becker, who is AKA Diamond Doodles on on Instagram, and she talked about it as a padparasha color, which padparasha, for those of you who are familiar with that sapphire, it's a very rare type of sapphire, mostly found in Sri Lanka, named after the Sinhalese word for sunset, I believe. It's kind of this blend of pink and orange. But what Hannah was saying is that Padparasha is now almost used as just an adjective for that color, less so specifically talking about that sapphire. So again, look for really beautiful fiery oranges and reds and yellows, and that'll be, I think, a, a big fashion hit. So that's a brief rundown of the colors we think will be hot in Tucson and throughout the year. And I think those all sound really cool and kind of different. So uh, Tucson sounds great. We're all <laughs> looking forward to that. And there was the Golden Globes uh, last week, right? Yes. Uh, they were Sunday night, I think a little earlier than usual. And Emily Vesland, our, one of our senior editors, covered them really well on the site. But I'll just recap that, you know, it wasn't hard to see this. It was a year of statement necklaces, which is really refreshing because there are some years when we come out of award shows and we just feel like, you know, they're barely an earring in sight or maybe only earrings. They're a lot of bare, sort of bare necks and bare clavicles. And this year, I mean, I sort of lost track. I mean, it all the big stars, all the, you know, major presenters seem to be wearing a massive diamond necklace, whether it was Tiffany or Bulgari or Harry Winston. Charlize Theron had an incredible colored stone and diamond kind of collar necklace. And Rachel Weiss had this intricate Harry Winston kind of bow necklace. Helen Mirren looked fantastic in Harry Winston. Gwyneth Paltrow had two Bulgari necklaces and diamond earrings on. I mean, even Rooney Mara, who is actually, we constantly talk about her because she's one of these just minimalists. She's an extreme minimalist. And I think even she had a diamond ring on. And there are most years when she has literally nothing, not one thing. Although I must say, Renee Zellweger, if anybody caught her, who apparently has done a remarkable job playing Judy Garland, and there's tons of Oscar buzz around her, wore nothing. Uh, I d- didn't catch if she had anything on her hands, but she wore nothing on her 
around her neck and nothing on her ears. And I thought she looked naked, I must say. (laughs) I just thought she looked naked. They should ban her. Who does she think she is? Yeah. So anyway, the Golden Globes were great for statement pieces, and I think that always drives interest. There was a a little bit of color, but it was primarily diamond. I think that just sort of ups the ante for for the Oscars. Cool. And I was going to ask you, I mean, we talked about Tiffany, which was actually all over the Globes, and it made me wonder, what is happening? Like, I haven't heard much from their communication end, so what do you know about what's happening with their recent acquisition by LVMH? It has to be approved in February, but it it looks... Like, it's good to go. As far as I know, no one's come out against it. I have to say, personally, I have mixed feelings about it. And I know a lot of people who used to work at the company have mixed feelings about it. I mean, this was a company that was very kind of proud of its history and its legacy. And that involved a certain independence historically. And, you know, LVMH, it's probably going to be with LVMH for a long, long time. I mean... LVMH tends not to give things up. And as I said, I have a little mixed feelings just because I think the industry is healthier with a wider variety of companies. You know, it's not an exactly analogous situation, but when Signet bought Zale, right, you know, a lot of people were excited at the time. And I think in retrospect, it became something that was too big for them to handle. And, you know, they've certainly had a lot of problems since. So right now, LVMH is an extremely healthy company, but things could change. I kind of get a little nervous about having all our eggs in one basket. That said, you know, if Tiffany has to have an owner, it's probably a pretty good owner. It, it certainly seemed like this was something that was kind of in the works as far as, you know, you had the former head of LVMH's watch and jewelry department on the board even though he recused himself. You had a former executive with Bulgari, which is now owned by LVMH, who is now serving as Tiffany's CEO. So it definitely seemed like this was something that was perhaps in motion. Perhaps, I don't want to say inevitable, but it it definitely seems like this was something that was being set up. I would say maybe perhaps that the stage was being set for this. Let's put it this way. I think one of the good things about this is... Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway was approached to bid on Tiffany, and it declined to do so. And I think one of the reasons it did not was because it's being considered something of a turnaround or a work in progress. Not that it's doing particularly poorly, but I think people see it as underperforming a little bit. But it's worth noting that during the last financial crisis, when you know everybody was having problems, including Tiffany, Buffett at some point had a bought, I think it was $250 million in Tiffany bonds, and that was probably one of the things that helped the company, uh, you know, get along during that period. So one of the probably benefits of this acquisition is that if there is another difficult time, one hopes that LVMH's financial strength will be able to keep the brand afloat because, you know, who knows what's going to happen. I mean, it's an unfortunate thing that it's very difficult to not be part of a conglomerate today. And everything is consolidating into very few hands. And it's, I don't think that's a particularly good trend, but, you know, you think Tiffany's not necessarily going to 
in a position to fight the trend either, and you, they have to go along with it. I mean, I'm sitting here reading, and this is published in February 2014, but it's on the McKinsey and Company website, and it's an article called The Jewelry Industry in 2020, and, you know, their number one item that they say, you know, the, the, the subhead is internationalization of brands and industry consolidation, and they go right out and say, you know, that uh, some industry observers project that the 10 largest jewelry houses will double their market share by 2020, primarily by acquiring local players. And mm -hmm. I guess Tiffany feels more than like a local player. It's obviously an international player already, or it was. But this feels like it was written a long time ago. The yeah. writing was on the wall. And a lot of people have talked about Tiffany being a takeover target for a long, long time. Something that's kind of come up every few years ago. Or so, and and look, LVMH certainly brings you know in addition to their financial strength, they have a certain know-how. Apparently, they're extremely savvy about China, which is a place that Tiffany's still really kind of getting its toe in the water there. So it, it's it'll definitely ha help in certain ways, and you you certainly hope that you know Tiffany will be able to keep what's best about the brand and also be able to utilize what's good about LVMH. I mean, that's kind of the optimal thing that you hope will happen in these mergers. I don't know if it always works out that way, but that's certainly what you hope. You know, LVMH, as I said, you know, they're probably a pretty decent owner for Tiffany. Uh, I think a lot of people said they've they've done extremely well with uh, Bulgari since they purchased it. Though it's interesting that people always point to, to Bulgari, how well they did, and they never talk about its experience with the De Beers retail brand, which was not such a great experience. Mm, or Chalmay, for that matter. Oh, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the thing about the De Beers retail brand is it was, it was kind of an attempt to build another Tiffany, right? A Tiffany-like mm, brand. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, well, we failed, so we'll buy the actual Tiffany, you know? You know, the CEO, Bernard Arnault, is in his 70s, so... He's not going to be there forever, so that's, you know, he's certainly the, the huge guiding force behind LVMH, so we'll, we'll see exactly how it goes. I, I mean, you do want what's good about Tiffany to stay. I mean, it has a history of philanthropy, and it also has a history of being very involved in responsible sourcing, and I thought it was very interesting, actually, if you heard about, you know, the conference call after with LVMH. That's something they, they called out again and again, that they were very impressed with how Tiffany does its sourcing. I think their marketing is excellent. I think they've stayed an extremely relevant brand. Certainly, I can't think of many more brands other than maybe like K and, and you know, some of the mall brands with a big, huge advertising budget who make as much noise on a consumer level as Tiffany. I mean, they just, they always have new celebrities they're involved with. They, they seem to be just a very active company and very good at getting their name out. And one thing, it's actually interesting because I never really thought of it this way that a lot of people have brought up is that they hope that Tiffany will retain its American character because it is an American brand and it's specifically a New York City brand, right? Because mm. that's mm -hmm. what it's associated with, Breakfast at Tiffany's and stuff like that. And, you know, in one of the interviews, Arnaud said, well, we're going to make it, it's an American brand, but we're going to make it a little more French, you know? And, you know, that has a lot of connotations, right? I mean, yeah. you want it to be accessible, right? You don't want it to be an elitist brand. I think one of the things that's attractive about the brand is it stands for a certain quality, but it is accessible. You can buy something at, at relatively uh, modest price points there. So 
we'll see how it goes. It's going to be very interesting. I mean, I think they got a great brand and uh, it's uh, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. You know, I'm not necessarily happy that it happened, but now that it has happened, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities for both players and hopefully they'll be smart about it and, and savvy about it. Yeah, I'm wondering who's next. Is there another company along those lines that's ripe for acquisition? Like, where else do these global behemoths like LVMH and Richemont go well, in I'm the sure jewelry space? The the big prizes are watch brands like Rolex and Patek, Patek Philippe. Philippe. Yeah, which and gets a lot of. There's a lot of rumor. You know, there's constantly rumors floating out in the world about Patek Philippe being acquired and Thierry Stern, at least when I was in Singapore in September for their grand exhibition, addressed that point in a very aggressive way, saying, no way, no how. Right. So who knows? Yeah, I who mean, knows? You Tiffany know, used to say that too. Yeah, so exactly. There so, so there's a lot of lip service uh, and we don't know when it's real or when it's uh, right. just... But, but you, you look at those... See, uh, what's different is Tiffany was a public company and one of the reasons for this acquisition that LVMH gave is that they said, you know, even though LVMH is also a public company, but by, you know, not reporting its its results separately, it will give it more of a long-term horizon and long be able to look in the long-term. And one of the things that you look at Rolex and Patek Philippe and some of these private watch brands is they're very long-term focused and it's worked great for them, you know? And it's they've built brands that are, amazing. You know, I don't necessarily think if, you know, LVMH and Richemont, they're all smart, great people, but I don't necessarily think that they could have achieved that with with those brands. I think it has to be a passionate, in those cases, it's, it's all about a passionate family company that really kind of drove mm. what those brands are. Absolutely. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now, back to the show. Let's have the weird story of the week. I noticed in the the last uh, podcast, you thought I had a stash of these stories. I I did. I guess I just assume you sit on these. No. Well, I mean, I have a... I collect them, but uh, there's no a connoisseur place. of weird stories. Yeah, but yes. there's no play. I do it the old-fashioned way through Google News. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so this is from you know it's a little it's a little weird. So I'm just warning you. I'm, okay? I'm excited about the weirdness. Um, yeah. You know, and if people are squeamish, they may want to tune out and listen to like a true crime podcast or something like <laughs> that something something nicer but anyway so, so this portentous is from, yeah this is from uh two british uh newspapers the sun and the mirror a japanese man has made an engagement ring from a year's worth of his fingernail clipping oh. <laughs> she's holding her head oh. yes in a youtube video titled engagement ring made from human nails the Japanese man explained that he had saved up his fingernail clippings for 12 months. Then he put them into a blender <laughs> to turn them into powder. However, this did not give him the desired consistency, so he used a coffee grinder to grind them up even further. He then removed 
all the excess liquid and place the resulting powder in a microwave oven for 90 minutes at 150 degrees. What came out of the oven can only be described as looking like a lump of dark clay. The man took the mixture. <laughs> I'm vomiting a tiny yeah. bit in my own mouth. I want everybody to know. You should see the... It's a shame this isn't video because the uh, Tori's facial expressions are, are great. <laughs> um, the man took the mixture. By the way, I, I, I you know, in the course of this, I, I watched the video and it's horrible. The man took the mixture and put it into a diamond-shaped mold before inserting it into a silver ring, which he also made himself. This 17-minute video, and it's 17 minutes, went viral and has reached close to 6 million views and left people reeling in horror. <laughs> One person wrote, when he tightened the bolt and the fingernail juice squirted out, I started to retch. Okay, okay. That's enough. <laughs> That's enough. A second? Do you want more? No. I mean, I do want you to yeah, okay. sort of come to your conclusion, but the, the imagery is Yeah. Uh, is that, okay, that's the worst lot. part. Okay. okay. A second person stated, and I think this is, a, this is a fair point, he's using kitchen implements for several stages of this. It makes me want to throw up. I would never accept a dinner invitation from this man. I second that. Yeah. I second that. <laughs> Another said, I've never been so disgusted yet amazed at the same time. And this, uh, this comment, I think, sums it up. A fourth person added, humanity was a mistake. <laughs> that's, that sums it up. Okay, but I have a burning question Yes. Here. Did she say yes? So the, the user is anonymous, so we don't know. Or, for that matter, did he say yes? Did we don't he? even know. Did the person, did the be beloved say yes? No, we don't know that since the person was anonymous and didn't follow up. Um, I assume if you were, you know, dating someone who is the kind of person who would save his fingernail clippings for a year and then make them into a ring, I, I assume you've kind of come to terms with uh, certain elements of this person's personality. That you're saying, okay, this is a guy who's going to do something completely uh, insane and, you know, be obsessive about it and then chronicle it on YouTube. And I, I think you've probably come to terms with this. I would hope, you know, he put a lot of work into it. I would hope. Uh, she said yes. I don't know if she actually wore the ring. I mean, it's not exactly a great sparkler. finger. Yeah. It's not a sparkler. Great, I don't even know uh, what it would look. But did they, the finished piece was was visible? Yeah. It's, you know, it's like a silver ring. Um I don't think, you know, I mean, do you think that's a great conversation? Hey, you know, it's from my uh, fiance's fingernails, you know, it's not uh, no, not something uh -uh. that like, you know, hey, it's a great thing at a party, but. I mean, we, you know, there are ample stories and we know we've reported on them about people's remains being turned yes. into diamonds, which makes that process seem like completely normal and conventional. Yeah. Like, uh, obviously, this takes it to a gruesome you know, utterly repulsive new level. And I think what it goes to show is that there is somebody for everybody in this world. Maybe that's <laughs> the happy so. takeaway. Yes, yes. If that man found somebody who felt overjoyed at this this gift, then well, then there's somebody hallelujah. for hallelujah. Hallelujah. I mean, you know, Two guy, people who really deserve each other. He, he put his fingernail clippings in a blender. 
<laughs> think about that. And you're like, you know, I mean, you might wash it, but it's still like, you know, I, I don't know if I'd want to get my margaritas from that uh, from that particular blender. Yeah, I think I think we can safely avoid that man's kitchen. Yeah. Uh, you want to tee up who's going to be on our next podcast? We have a very exciting. It's not a guest. It's guests. It's multiple. And our next podcast, it's very exciting because, yes, as Rob just indicated, it's not its not one person. It's two people. And it's not just two people. It's two people who are married. And they're both very lovely and very well-known in this industry. One is Haley Hennig, VP of Sales and Marketing at Greenland Ruby, longtime figure in the colored stone world. So if you've gone to Tucson, you've probably seen Haley running around and uh, giving speeches. And she's, I'd consider her a friend. We've been in the same circles for many years. And her husband of nearly three years, Eric Jens, he's a strategic partner for companies in the luxury industry, comes from the world of diamond financing, banking actually before that. And again, another very well-known figure in the trade, gives a lot of speeches, very well-spoken and has a really great perspective on on the industry in general and financing in particular. Sounds like it's going to be uh, informative yet fun. I hope so. They're both extremely informative yet fun. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like us. Yeah, there you go. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor and engineer is Levi Sharp. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.